0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We are, in fact, on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania today. Just like the intro says, not often here. Only our maybe third time or so. Since pandemic time, this is Cade Massey, and all my important Moneyball collaborators are here. Audie Weiner straight away, Shane Jensen to my right, Audie, I mean Eric Bradlow to my left. Good afternoon, guys.
2: Afternoon. It is
1: spectacular in Philadelphia today, spectacular peak, spring weather. It's 75 or something. It's kind of soft air, not too much wind. The trees are green. Birds are literally chirping on locust walk kids are walking around graduation was just yesterday day before some are still in their robes taking pictures parents are here some people are moving out of their dorms it's just picturesque perfect west philadelphia day are y'all experiencing it that way or yeah, yeah exactly. first time i've worn
2: shorts uh, this
1: year oh my it's great. god that's absurd said the texan my gosh i go back in time whenever i come up here um, all right, guys, uh, we've got two hours in front of us. We've got a great interview at the end with Seth Partnow on the NBA and the playoffs. Between now and then, a number of subjects we want to tackle. But first, including the world of COVID, but not limited to the world of COVID, what has caught your eye over the last week?
3: So we've had less and less COVID to talk about over the last month. And uh, big thumbs up from Shane. Mm-hmm. But there is news today that actually is uh, important to discuss. The FDA just recommended or approved, actually approved, for emergency youths a a booster shot for children ages 5 to 11. Okay. They've already approved it for 12 to 18, and obviously for adults who've – and over 50 has been approved for a – recommended, actually, for a a fourth shot. And it's big news because it's, once again – very limited data to go on, which makes a decision like this very controversial. So Pfizer has been running a trial on kids since 2021. Um, we haven't heard much of this from this trial, which is always actually interesting, because when there isn't early information, that often means that's not good, um, mm-hmm. because the the original trial with vaccine, for example, was released very quickly because the data was so conclusive so quickly. They ran up like 180 cases to five, um, and they curtailed it because it was so obvious that the benefit was so strong. Are the standards higher with children? Well, it's—I'm it, not sure the standards are higher, but the problem is—is is that you're looking at preventing something. That is oh, rare, with a low and you have oh, okay. what we call less and less power. Mm-hmm. So infections, which is something that we keep an eye on, um, is important, but that's not in the decision. So the FDA made its decision based on two data points. I'll tell you what they are. We can discuss them. Um, they took a subsample, subsample from this trial of 400, and they looked at their antibodies in the in a test tube, um, and they were elevated, um, and that was one piece of evidence. That was actually the piece of evidence, and in um, Actually, I got it backwards. It was sixty-eight that they looked at the antibodies, and they were they were elevated. In four hundred, they looked at side effects, and they found nothing serious—just the minor stuff that everybody gets: headaches, uh, you know, pinkness around, soreness. Nothing, nothing se- serious. Which um, that's what they had, and that's what the decision was based on. They have nothing on efficacy. They've got not- nothing that that shows that it'll limit anything at all. It just this, and we'll see what the CDC. Well, I mean,
2: they have the efficacy of. People that are older.
3: Well, I uh, know. OK, we can. We, right. We have uh, the Bayesian. Bayesian comes in. I mean, for those of you who don't quite understand what Bayesian analysis is, means that they take data from anywhere they can get it and integrate it into an observation. So we're dealing with children here. Right. So we don't have any data. Uh, so we have data about other people. Um, so the third booster shot in particular yeah. um, has shown to be quite effective for Older people, as in genuinely older, 50, 60, not including you, Shane. You're you're not in that group. Um, and, in fact, there, she shows no benefit in age 18, 12 to 18, which is a place where they approved it. And, again, I'm But, again, because approval. of lack of power, yeah.
2: mostly, right?
3: Yeah, but, you know. So, I mean, I but, mean, they but, already
2: but, approved it for 18 to 60, for example. Was that just based on – was there actual signs of efficacy there?
3: No, no, there wasn't. Nothing. Nothing. Saying, no signs I, I, of I, I, efficacy. Period.
2: Well, uh, wait, wait, and it, let's define efficacy yeah, here. Yeah, I, Ho- reduced hospitalization, nothing. chance of death. Nothing. But
1: the antibodies were
2: there. The antibodies. antibodies were there. Antibodies. And they
3: noticed, and this is something that, that that's been controversial. Than how you look at it, there seems to be about a three to six week period of slightly lower infection rate, which disappears rapidly. Most of us have noticed this. I've uh, talked about it. So there is a pumped up period where you have a little bit of extra antibodies, a little bit of benefit, and that and goes away. So if you actually listen to the CDC or you listen to their virologists, their experts, some of them who are here at the University of Pennsylvania, they will say, well, that itself is beneficial mm-hmm. and worthwhile. And that's because we're looking at much higher rates. And also, this is actually interesting, it doesn't seem that the older people have side effects. The, the 12 to 18 younger people clearly – we talked about this last week – clearly have potential side effects that are significant enough relative to the value that need
4: to be worried so about. So I just want to make sure I understand what you're stating because I'm, I'm a little confused. I just want to be clear. Are you saying that there's – it's a follow-up to Shane's question. Are you saying that there's no evidence that a booster shot – Forget age 5 to 11. Let's take 18 to 60. Yeah, 18. You're saying there's no evidence that a booster shot to people age 18 to 60 reduces hospitalization and no, death.
3: No, no, not at all. We're talking about for 12 to 18, there's no evidence. Above that, there's no yeah, there's well, evidence. No, yeah. Well, right, right. Well, my point sure. is there is
2: evidence that yes. 18 to 60
3: right and right. so but and but that almost all that evidence by the way comes from the upper end where all the cases happen sure so you want to drag in 18 like it somehow matters almost all of that is 65 and over so you you, you expand this range and go okay for 18 to, to and up it matters so therefore 12 to 18 what's the big deal well actually there's no evidence for 18 to 40 how about that we'll throw that out so it's 60 40 to 80 okay 40 and up there's plenty of evidence plenty of evidence and by the way for people who are immune I mean, you to you're our treating these like age
2: cutoff like they're discreet right. cutthroats. Oh, well, no, you are. Plenty actually. of evidence above 40. <laughs> And, I mean, but there's no evidence is, from
3: 18 to 40. This is a, a. I mean, this is not hard stuff for you guys. I'm trying to explain this to to our listeners. But we have a massive curve that uh, for for illness rates that grow dramatically as you get older. Mm-hmm. and this has made it very difficult to make inferences about younger people because we lack data and, and lack so, power. And we lack power. I mean, they, they go, well, we don't lack data because power is so minimal. You need a lot of data to to to, to ramp up power. So when you're trying to measure a small effect, you have to have massive mm. amounts no, of data. But, and but basically it's, it's, it's been – so what's happened with the kids is basically we're saying, we well, can't actually measure anything. So we'll just look for things that we can see in a test tube, and we can look for things that, that, are, well, that, are, that
4: are happening. Yeah, or, nice. or, or another way to think about it, just quickly, another way to think about it is there's no demonstrated evidence yet of side effects. Given that there's not a lot of demonstrated evidence in massive side effects – And there is, at least in older populations for which we have higher power, a a significant relationship between antibodies and protection. Therefore, why not? I understand it's not the same level, but if the side effects are low and the benefits are there, and potentially, let's be clear, part of the rationale, I assume, of the FDA might as well be, might well be, When children don't get COVID, people around them get less COVID, and therefore it will save their other people's lives. This
3: is not a scientific argument. Well, how about Why this? Not? This sounds like I'm in a psychology class. No offense. Why but this not a scientific because argument? Because this is not measured. And there are things that are important. You're giving people well, vaccines right. that cause problems that we know they cause problems in rare cases. And we can easily um, uh, ignore them because the benefits in, in people who have a serious problem from illness is so much higher. When you start to deal with children, we're talking 5 to 11, the cases are almost non-existent. And, for, and we'll throw out, and, 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 if, and if you throw out people who have any kind of serious background illness, they are not only mostly, but completely non existent. So, what we're saying here is we're making an argument that we're going to give a vaccine to a, to a child, which might have vac- uh, uh, side effects that we don't quite understand, because it might make some older person less dangerous. Where's the calculus that says scientific argument that says this is useful?
2: Well, uh, no, but okay. I'll give you a calculus argument. You know, we obviously we've demonstrated that there is a benefit to these vaccines in older people. And so I'm going to argue that whatever. And, and, you know, you're certainly making a very passionate and compelling argument that that uh, that benefit decreases as a function of as you go down to lower ages. But calculus argument, it's a decreasing but continuous function. There's no break point where it just drops to zero. Right, it's probably a decreasing the benefit. Whatever benefit you want to talk about is a decreasing continuous function, and you're somehow arguing that it's close enough to zero yes. by the time we get to well, 18 way, well, or well, something. I mean, we're not talking about, we're
3: talking about people who are unvaccinated. We're talking about people who are vaccinated but boosted. Sure, and that little margin. No, is I'm, I'm talking about specifically va-
2: I'm talking about specifically the effectiveness of the, the efficacy of the booster. And that which is also such would such be- a
3: squeeze. It's su- there's nothing we can see. And by the way, the final point is that we don't seem to be seeing any really substantive benefit in terms of lowering of infection. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, so I think the point you're making, which is important, because I think it's important for everyone to hear, is you're not suggesting, I hope you're not suggesting that vaccination is not valuable, because right here I'm reading from a recent CDC report that studies specifically children age 5 to 11, and I'll just read, it only took me one sentence to read, during the period of Omicron predominance, December 19th, 2021, to February 28 2022, COVID-19 associated hospitalization rates hospitalization rates in children aged 5 to 11 were twice as high among unvaccinated as vaccinated children. So, and I could go through how many subjects they had and exactly how they assess this. You're suggesting something different. Yes, now, just to I'm be clear, about which is boosting, boosting amongst yes. them.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm. And by the way, this is a separate consider. This is a general recommendation. As a, They've already been recommended it for immunocompromised or otherwise very seriously ill, which is something that is a different matter. We're talking about for the general healthy population. And most of the discussion are, are, is like, why are we doing this? And, and frankly, I would argue that the major reason why we're doing this is political.
1: Well, that's a um- – now you're moving away from your scientific argument. Of course, it's, uh, too.
3: it's not. But when you ask yourself, why would an organization that has generally been super cautious, and in fact, if you ask the historical amount of vaccine efficacy that's been required, is fifty percent, we're nowhere near that kind of value. Mm-hmm. Nothing, and yet there seems to be a a, a push to get these things pr- uh, more than just recommended. In fact, Wolinsky, when we dealt with the 12th or eighteen, she went and said. The the FDA was like, "Okay, we'll approve it, but we'll let people kind of figure out whether they want to do it. She overruled them and said, we actually suggest it. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, there's no mandate, but but suggested it.
1: Well, one thing we've learned over the last two plus years is that it turns out some of these public health organizations are, in fact, politically influenced. And it's just we've seen it now in multiple directions. Um, What about the zero to fives? Pfizer or Moderna, they were they were asking for it. And, I, you know, I have lots of friends with kids in that age and their lives are really handicapped in a way that the rest of us aren't. Because if those guys are in daycare or school and they get come down positive and they have to stay home for 10 days and then the parents lives are disrupted. And so they're you know, they're not immunocompromised, but they are definitely handicapped in a way that others aren't. What what's the latest on zero to fives?
3: The latest is Nothing. And that leads me to wonder whether or not it's working. Okay. Because um, you're and dealing with very, 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 very there low There is rates. a
2: clinical trial involving oh, those yes. age groups. Oh, yes.
3: There is. And you, you're asking, why how, Why are we not seeing the data? Mm-hmm. So, again, this is like we're trying to infer, infer something from not, not not nothing happening.
1: And in these cases, in this case, the data will again be test tube antibodies.
3: No, no. They actually have a trial. They're looking at infectiousness. And I think the, what's going on is my, my suspicion is, just a speculation, is that the decrease in infectiousness, infectiousness isn't there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'm, we're all waiting for, which we haven't heard anything yet, is the new variants. Right, Moderna talked; they have in in trial these new variants of, of the mRNAs that are dedicated to our Omicron and its subgroups.
4: I have to admit, I'm now reading again the article that Audi's referring to, which came out today, by the way. Given that this is from the FDA, it is actually now that I'm reading this more carefully, it is absolutely what Audie's. It's more. It's a little now shocking to me. That they're basing their decision on 67 study participants who received a booster dose seven to nine months, which we don't even know if that's the right timing. And then for side effects, it's 400 people. There, I, I just have to believe, and maybe Adi would disagree, there's got to be more evidence than this, than 67 people mm-hmm. getting a booster and 400 getting it and not seeing any side effects. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't, it, it just, if that, let me just say it the following way. If that were the evidence for the original vaccine, there's no way the original vaccine would be approved with that sparsity of evidence. So my guess is it's not that they don't – they they must either, but either do what Shane and I are doing, which is – I'll call it maybe erroneously, I don't think it is, but saying there's a continuous curve, there must be an extrapolation downwards, or we've got a lot of, if you like, test tube evidence that the number of antibodies goes way up. Now, whether that will translate into better you know, reduction of hospitalization and death, maybe they're speculating on that, so they're playing the loss function the other way given they're not measuring side effects, but there has to be greater evidence that they're bringing to bear than just this data there has to be Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. i looked for pfizer study it's supposed to be released but not yet
4: right so this by the way let's be clear pfizer also says that they've shown evidence of it but i could not actually find the study yet but i'm just saying i think we all agree Mm -hmm. it's not like they're irrational people it's not like they don't have statisticians that understand the concepts of sample size power etc they have all of those things so my guess is they have They either might be doing one of two things. They either have data we don't have. That's possible. It's also possible, again, their loss functions are different than our loss functions. That's possible. Um, A third thing is is that they're making an assumption about the curve relationship between older age groups and younger age groups, which you're not and maybe I'm not comfortable making. But it's one of those three. It's not like they're just – I would be shocked. If we're sitting here two months from now, Adi, and this is the only piece of information that they had at the time, that would be shocking. Well, I would not be shocked, and
3: I think one of the reasons I why these are being—I think the the community wants them. I think parents of five to eleven wants them,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: they're making their voices heard. And this is influencing did, the process. Didn't
4: they also know, by the way, that I think it's today. Today's. Tuesday, so tomorrow, Wednesday, that there's a meeting of their advisory council that's going to review all of this and come to a, you know, I don't want to say a recommendation, but like they had to know that a team of actual epidemiologists and statisticians were going to review this decision and say, where is the body of evidence? So they they have to know that this is happening tomorrow. It's been announced for weeks.
1: Guys, different topic, broadly, same issue. It seems that the reports are cases are really blown up again. And even just anecdotally, everyone has somebody. We have staff out, friends have people out. And it's not even in the Northeast anymore. I'm seeing maps where it's just red everywhere. Does this translate into any different behavior on your part? Does it translate into any different desired behavior on other people's part? No. Are we
2: just, are we, are we <laughs> no. capitulating? Capitulating. Coexisting. Again, are you looking for some victory over this endemic virus?
1: No, I'm curious about the optimal response given what I think can be called a surge. Yeah. And in the past, we've responded in some way. And I feel like this time around, it's like, "Mm, well...
2: But again, surge, I think one of the lessons we've learned hopefully from the last couple of years, or at least the lesson I, I take to heart from the last couple of years is until it starts actually translating into serious outcomes like hospitalizations and deaths, then, you know, like a surge in cases, you know, we, we, we've seen, you know, cases kind of like we've, that, that's kind of been decoupled over the last year or so, you know, ca- you know a surge in cases necessarily leading to a surge in, in actual sort of serious outcomes. And I realize there's a delay involved in, and such. But I, I guess I just don't, uh, you know, I, have we I,
1: become insensitive to increases that. are yes.
2: actually. I mean, what, what you're obviously my last like, you know, two minutes has to, <laughs> well, it could but, be described as an insensitive attitude. I mean, well, I don't, but, you know. but, but
1: but but Shane, I think we don't worry about infrastructure collapse in the way that we used to. I mean, hospitals yeah. aren't going to all max out, but hospitalization rates are up. Yes. And that means people's lives are affected. And OK. You know, so, and we're just we're, we're kind of inured to it at this I, point, think,
4: I think so let me let me frame uh, maybe it's similar to Shane's perspective. there's no de- well first of all, just to give you the data I just looked today, uh, deaths average right now, this is according to the CDC website, are averaging about three hundred a day on a seven day moving average. So that's obviously still down. It's deaths. Deaths are still way down. But still, I'm not happy if 100,000 people die every year from COVID. But that's the rate we're at right, well, right. now.
2: And, and, and I guess it's sort of like, you know, I, I think the kind of, I guess the counter argument is, what do we want to do? Like, like you
4: know, are those well, was, are, are we still considering those preventable deaths? Right. So that was going to be my, yeah, my point was going to be, right. I think, and it relates partly also to Adi's. You know, comment on my comment earlier about the children age 5 to 11. I think what people have less tolerance for is what I'll call the I'm doing this for the societal good, which is. I'm going to prevent myself from getting COVID so that I don't affect others who are potentially unvaccinated or immunocompromised. In other words, there were I think many of us were willing to think about, you know, what about my 89 year old mother? What about all of these individuals? And so I think that's partly what you're seeing now. I think people are like, look, everybody should know that vaccines work. They're very effective. If you're over the age of 50, you should have at least three shots by now, if not four. If you do have, start to have symptoms, don't wait. Get Paxlovid or get some one of the therapeutics that we have right now. I think people have less tolerance for what I would call the, you know, I'm going to do this to protect others. Well, argument.
2: And I mean, for vaccines specifically, if I'm understanding kind of the data, the like kind of rough data is that, you know... uh it is much more of a personal thing because we've uh, what, what have we heard throughout for Omicron and later variants and maybe an updated vaccine would change this calculus again. But it's that it doesn't really help your infectiousness. Correct. It only affects your personal health outcomes. And so it, it, it goes back to being a personal choice. Like, you know, if that truly is the case where the vaccine does not affect affect uh, infectiousness, but only affect you know kind of changes your probability of a serious outcome yourself. Then there is no public no, health think, think real what Shane, what consideration what Kate's, what Kate's for vaccines. What
4: Kate's also referring to is you, We could all be sitting here and with our families and others with N95 masks. Well, right. properly so master, yeah, We could be social distancing. We could I was be specifically doing out- no, no, that's talking
2: what, about vaccines. Oh, that's different. as an action. And that's you know that's I mean they're fair. still mandated for you know like that's why I think that you know it's kind of. Silly at this point with the, their current kind of type of affectionist, you know, dynamics to, to demand date them because it is much more a personal thing. Masks and all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're I guess we'll just kind of keep, you know, that's that's going to be sort of a, a, a an option as far as action goes for a while.
3: Just want to throw one direction to the conversation. I think that's interesting. I think people have realized how much we've missed. And I don't think there's an appetite for going back.
1: Well, it is this funny calculus where it's like, okay, am I compromising? I'm I'm in a series of trips right now. Am I compromising my future trips by being too cavalier on this trip? It's a little funny because then I would be compromising this trip on the prospect of, you know, to not compromise the future. So it's a little it's can I do some is there some middle ground? Maybe.
3: Can I ask an anecdotal, purely anecdotal, I don't know if anyone has data, but it seems to me in, in my experience, almost everyone who, who I know who's getting it this time has not had it before. I mean, I know of people who are getting it again, but they are—they tend to be not people I know directly. Do you, you're noticing inbound mostly people who haven't ever gotten it?
4: No. I know no. people that have gotten it multiple times, many, yep. many. And, in, and in, by the mm-hmm. way, especially younger people, but yeah. even people my age.
1: All right. Well... Um, on we go on we go often maskless into the surge we'll see how it goes we'll talk about it again next week I'm sure that has been Q1 here on Wharton Moneyball coming to you from the studio the SiriusXM studio here at Huntsman Hall we still have three quarters to go come back and join us
3: after the break
4: you're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on business radio Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneybone. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Music by Dion Simpkins. It's a pleasure. One of the many pleasures of being in studio is we get to play in music live real time. He's not laying it on there after the fact. He's telling us when to start and when to stop. Very appreciative of that. dion has been with us from day one. Bunch of rookies, bunch of whippersnappers in here eight years ago. How'd you put up with this? I have no idea. This is Cade Massey hosting today with the whole crew. Eric is here. Adi is here. Shane Jensen is here. Delighted you guys are here. We always happen to hear from you. Wish you would jump in in more ways. You can reach us on Twitter, probably our best social media platform, at W At W is our handle on Twitter. Send us questions, observations, criticisms, whatever you got. You can also send us email. We have a mailbag. Our email address is moneyballatwharton.upenn.edu. Moneyballatwharton.upenn.edu. We read everything that comes in. We get as much of it as we can on the air. Guys, we need to step that up a little bit. We haven't had anything on the air from the mailbag in a while. We'll dig some up in the next week or two. But please do let us hear. We hear lots of things from you guys, and we appreciate it. lots of interesting things. And we do get them into the show. Guys, we have two quarters coming up of open topics, open lines. I would suggest that we start with some of the playoffs that are going on right now. And I have to say, so the hockey, I mean, we say these things about, we say overtime, we say playoff hockey special, we say overtime playoff hockey is especially special. We had two game seven. Overtimes back-to-back back over the weekend.
2: And five Game 7s, like five of the eight series in the opening that round was went to Game 7. And it was incredible. And the last two went to overtime yes. in Game 7. It's yeah, just yeah. Sun- Sunday, if you weren't watching hockey, you were, uh,
1: you were messing up. So you got your uh, battle of Alberta. Alberta,
2: yeah, the battle of Alberta. It used to be all the rage back in the late '80s, early '90s. The two top teams in the league back then.
1: And was that just it, brutal as a Calgary fan? Because every year you bump against the Oilers. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I mean, this it, was the, it basically what you know. I, I got used to losing of uh, things, you know, very early on in my so sports re- watching just, career.
1: Just remind us, this was the Gretzky Oilers.
2: Yeah, Gretzky Oilers. Like, how
1: many times did they make the Stanley Cup Finals from the West? Or oh, they I mean, it, I they
2: think. went uh, at least five because they won four, right? Yeah, I guess I guess the Gretzky Oilers run four. The the the, they the, they, won the one Oilers won one more after Gretzky had already uh, left as well. So they they won five Stanley Cups in kind of that era. Four with Gretzky. So,
1: by the way, remind me what the Western Conference was called back in the day?
2: The Smythe Division. The Smythe. Well, the I mean, not the West. The The what? What I guess we now call the the the, the Pacific oh, the or whatever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, so, and they have it. One thing I like about the kind of hockey, the structure of the playoffs in hockey, is that they are kind of maintaining that sort of divisional thing in the in kind of the bracket. So you can kind of the, the, the one of the reasons you know that the Battle of Alberta is even on is that you know the, the Calgary and Edmonton are in the same division and therefore we're lined up. You know they don't do reseeding after the first round. So
1: you're you're basically saying that then the they're going to send one team out of each division into the final four. Correct.
2: Oh, Correct. that's neat. Yeah, with the pods. Is it... Yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, they started with the yes. pods and they're just basically rolling it forward. Oh, I, I love actually that. love it. I love yeah. it too. I mean, c- just because it emphasizes a lot of kind of historically interesting matchups like this one. Mm-hmm. In the playoffs, this is the first time since that kind of like early not late '80s early '90s era that the Flames and Oilers have even met in the playoffs again, and mm-hmm. we've got this battle of Roberta. and that's only one of the kind of interesting regional
4: matchups we got going well, on don't, the second don't, round. Don't
1: go the seconds yet; we're not done uh, with the first.
4: Yeah, no, I I just have a question about just to Shane about since. You know, you've always been that hockey's somewhat of a coin flip, without going into the details no. of the next round, does it surprise you that there are there's basically a well, you're not surprising you that Colorado's the top probability mm-hmm. of winning the Stanley yep. Cup. But does it surprise you that the Blues, Rangers, and Edmonton basically according to the betting odds, are like ten to one underdogs compared to Colorado? Like if I gave yeah. you, if you like, I'll take the Rangers. You can take Colorado, but you give me ten to one odds. No, I wouldn't give you ten to one odds. Yes, I do think the favorites are over, over,
2: over, over, essentially overweighted or in, in the betting, uh, or their probabilities are too high in the playoffs. I mean, I will point out that all the one seed all the kind of one seeds did make it. They, the the hockey playoffs is as exciting. has been have kind of gone. Mostly to chalk? to chalk in this first round, but I think we we saw that which kind of has easily... happened in the past. I mean, but, in the past but, we've seen them well, eliminated. I, I mean, you know, almost every playoffs, I feel like there's at least one kind of big first round or second round upset, and it still could happen. I mean, it almost happened to the Flames basically. So the Flames then had to go to overtime of Game Seven to beat the Dallas Stars, and they the Flames, you know, on paper. Much better team, and they even played in Game Seven like a bird. I just want to tell you guys, it had to go to overtime to resolve. But the Flames, the Calgary Flames, outshot the Dallas Stars sixty-seven to twenty-eight in that game. <laughs> Have you ever watched a basketball play game? Even even Suns versus Mavericks, where the Mavericks took t- over twice as many shot attempts? No. Yeah. So <laughs> well, that just uh, goes to show how a hot goaltender, Jake Ottinger for Dallas, is one of the best goaltenders in the league. A hot goaltender can, you know, kind of basically make your seeding moot. Okay. Yeah.
1: Super interesting. Well, um, the one, one of the series that didn't go chalk was the Lightning knocking out the Leafs. That's right. Because the Leafs had one of the great regular seasons. I yeah. think they had the highest point percentage in their history. Yeah. And then they had the misfortune of facing a two-time Stanley Cup right. champion, defending, two-time defending champ Lightning, who... You know, it's it's even,
2: kind of tough for them to be in the same division as Tampa Bay, and for Tampa Bay to sort of be the three seed in this particular like playoff round, you know, right. in that first round.
1: I was really intrigued to hear the conversation around. I'm always pulling for the Leafs because Kyle Dubas is is um, a young GM there who's very open minded and, and sharp, and um, he's built the team up, but they're still suffering from 50 yeah. plus years now. They haven't won a cup in 60 since 1967. They haven't won a playoff series since the early 2000s.
2: Oh yeah, no, they're they're, uh, they're, they're well, I think they're like 0 for nine in the last nine elimination games. Yeah, in the playoffs, it's it's terrible. So,
1: but pe- so people here's the thing. This is kind of a question I have for you. Is like people jump on this first round loss as oh my god another one, and this is you know yeah. multiple years in a row now, and 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 people are like well the, what are they what are they going to do? What do they have to do? And then others are like hold on, they just went. Seven games against the two-time defending champs, and they had one of the best regular seasons yeah. they've ever had in the history of the franchise. Do you really need to change anything?
2: Yeah, and I mean, for in the case of the Maple Leafs, I would sort of stay the I would not panic. I mean, I, th- I think we're kind of, I think their process, there's nothing wrong with their process. They've built an incredible team. They've just gotten kind of, unlucky i mean i don't know if there's some psychological effect to this kind of long sort of like streak of blowing it in elimination games or not but you know i i I personally wouldn't push the panic button at all or really change anything about what they're doing they were you know a goal or two away from beating the defending champions and getting this monkey off their back and then i mean they'll be right back probably in the play in play you know in the playoffs again next year they've got a great young team
1: the third the game seven Third period. They were down a goal. And they you rarely see a team dominate another team the way they dominated yeah. the Lightning. And they just couldn't get it in the net. I mean, kudos to the Lightning. Until the Flames get...
2: played the Stars, and that was almost the exact same recipe. Is that right? Yeah.
1: So I want to say one other thing about that series, because I don't watch that much hockey. And every now and then, you watch it. And it's fun when you a player jumps out to you. It's fun to just the, even maybe especially as the naive eyes to come. And on the ice, one guy just seems different. And for me, that was Marner for the Leafs. Mm-hmm. I, he just, something, the way he handles the puck or his speed or something, when he has the puck, it just looks different than when other guys have the puck. And I know he's one of their top guys, but he's, he's not Austin Matthews, but still he's the one, yeah. at least in his puck handling, that jumps out to me, and it's a lot of fun to watch.
4: Yeah, Sean, Wadash, I'm not really a hockey guy, but I, you know, when I look at the teams that are left, like obviously we talked about this many times. Show Florida and Colorado had really great seasons. Yeah. Like historically, I mean, one hundred twenty-two yeah. points, one hundred ten top ten seasons. But the teams they're playing now have a hundred and ten points. Could you give us a sense? Like maybe it's in baseball or basketball, some sports I know a little bit better. Like how much difference is that? Like they're favored like two and a half, three to one. Where a yeah, hundred and I, is a pretty damn good number yeah. if I've got it right. So. Like in baseball, let's say a team wins ninety-seven games, which would be a very a hundred games, even a very good baseball season. How many wins does the other team have that I can compare? To like you know, Florida or Colorado playing their opponent with a hundred and ten points. Is it like a playing a ninety-win team, a yeah, ninety-five yeah, win team, or like
2: yeah, like like ninety-two wins or something like that? I, I I think yeah. I mean, again, those play the the those gambling odds are way off. I think. I mean, you know, Colorado. You know, certainly. Like that, take the Battle of Florida. You know our other kind of amazing regional kind of yeah, r- rivalry yeah, in, the, yeah. in the second round. You know Florida has had this historically good season, but to have them two to one over the defending Stanley
4: Cup champions. Oh, so I didn't even know the matchup. They're playing the Lightning. Yeah, Battle right. of Florida. Right. So that that's great. But I, I mean, that just also even if I don't worry about the past, I agree. Florida had 122 points. That's yeah. great. Tampa Bay had 110.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, has been the most successful team in the playoffs for the last two years running. You know, they've they're they're kind of a dynasty. You know, to the extent yeah. that we even have dynasties in hockey uh-huh. anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I I do think. I mean, I wouldn't put you know those probabilities. I I, I it's about
4: two to one. By the way, just yeah, to let I mean, you know, that's crazy. It's to two me. to one. I mean,
2: I mean, I wouldn't put it above like you know uh, yeah, maybe 60-40 at most. And even that, I think, is probably too high. Two to one. Mike, yeah. I don't
1: understand that at all. And, yeah, and, and the, I
2: mean, co- the Colorado matchup. So I, th- I, th- I think Tampa Bay is a better kind of team playing against Florida than St. Louis is playing against Colorado. So Colorado being the highest odds or, yeah. or the, the, the 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 Stanley Cup favorite
4: yeah. at this point, I agree with. But again, not. It's about at eight and a, and even a to 2 one. to one. Eight level. Half, Colorado's an eight. I if I just look at the relative odds yeah. of winning the cup. Avalanche are plus 196, St. Louis is plus 1720. So that's yeah. eight and a half times. That's crazy. Yeah. I, 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 that's, you know.
1: Shane, point us to some of the players left in the playoffs. You've got eight teams left. Point us to some of the players that you think might be fun to watch or pay attention to.
2: Well, I mean, if you if you liked watching uh, Marner on Toronto, I mean, watch Johnny Gaudreau on the Flames. That guy just flies all over the ice. He's super energetic. Mm -hmm. Um, he's from I think the area he's from like southern New Jersey I think Johnny Hockey so yeah check out Johnny Hockey on the Calgary Flames and actually check out that series in general because it'll be interesting the the Battle of Florida will be interesting because you know those games could like be one like 8-6 or something like these are two very explosive high-scoring okay. teams okay the battle of alberta if it goes by historical standards and even you know the teams as currently configured it's going to be a bloodbath it's going to be you know the kind of bruiser sort of really playoff hockey even, you, you
1: named goudreau on the flame side and then you've got mcdavid of course on the roller yes. side even Conor, with yes, those guys right. it's still going to be a bruiser
2: yes okay. that's right it's, i mean even when, even when gretzky was playing it was still a bruiser he was just kind of like skated through all that yeah okay
1: yeah. By the way, I saw him as a as a like a hockey night on the on yeah, TBS or whatever and he he was I I enjoyed listening to. It. He's just such a very different personality for those TV shows. And he's not is all the stereotypical TV show personality.
2: Yeah, he's guy, he's a very careful, calm kind of speaker uh-huh. which doesn't really fit in with <laughs> no.
4: our gig for for oh, example. Wow. See, this is, I haven't even <laughs> been paying that close attention. The hockey's tonight. There's yeah. two games Starts tonight. tonight. Starts up tonight. Opposite the NBA. So you know, this is a challenge, I'm just saying. I mean, obviously, I'm You're, a big...
1: You can always rise to it, Eric. We, no, no, no. i going to be watching capacity... now. I see
4: the Battle of Florida. First game's tonight. Yeah. I have to watch that game <laughs> yeah, yeah, now. You do. you do. On my second screen.
1: You know, the NBA, they... they... They gave Saturday night to hockey. I, I didn't. They've done that a couple of weeks in a row now. I expect to. Maybe yeah, I was wondering if that was kind
2: of intentional or just kind of the way it all sort of fell right with you know the particular series that you know went to seven games. Right. But yeah, That I thought it was amazing that like you know basically I had a whole weekend where I could just kind of zone in on hockey. Do we
4: know by the way? Is hockey in the second round? Is it maybe you don't know? Is it two three two or two two one one one?
2: I think it's two two one 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 one. So but it's, I, I, I we, we need some still confirmation two, on still? I that. feel
4: like two three
1: twos were times of our youth.
4: No, there is B- two. baseball still does two three two in the final in the World Series. Only. Not in the, no, not in the CS's. No, no huh. I don't think so. I think just in the World Series. We'll have to take a look at that. I okay. think. Okay.
1: Well, let's talk about the other sport that's still playing their playoffs. We have the NBA now all the way into the third round, which are the conference finals, and of course our Sixers are gone. But you've still got some really fun teams out there playing.
4: Well, I think the interesting part is, and probably it's not. This is not. That's maybe the Dallas is in would surprise people. But in the West, for sure, it's it the three people. and the four seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you had told this is one of those things. If you had told Golden State that they'd be in the conference finals, they would have said, "Yeah, of course we're going to beat Memphis." But that they would have the home court now <laughs> yeah. as the three seed, they would have said. We told you, or not just we told you, but, like, we did it optimally. We rested Thompson during the season. We rested Curry. Rested. Now they're the home team in this round. Obviously, they were, besides, I think, just because of ta- overall talent-wise, they were definitely rooting for Dallas. Come on. You'd rather
1: play for Dallas than the Suns. Yes, yes of course. The Suns, for sure. I mean, we were talking about the Suns being, like, 70% favorite or 50% favorites to make the yeah. finals before they were through their second series.
4: And playoff experience. Yeah. And you'd much rather have home court. Than not have home court. I think the West, look, I think Golden State is going to be very, very tough to beat. I'm really interested, though, in seeing, assuming I'm right, but I could be wrong, that Golden State, Matt just told us it is 2-2-1-1-1 in hockey. If Golden State beats uh, Dallas and faces either the Celtics or the Heat, it's going to be a really interesting contrast of style because I'm not saying Golden State's a bad defensive team, but they're not a great defensive <laughs> right. team. That's fair. No, no, they're not. Fair. No, they're not. They've got, look, Draymond Green's a good defensive it is player. It's not what they're known for. Clay they're, Thompson's they're a good Gary defensive Payton player. Gary Payton
1: Jr.'s hurt. One of their best defensive players no, is out.
4: No, he's hurt as well. But also their centers are decent uh, defensive players. They're a decent average defensive team. The two Eastern teams... Left are tremendous defensive teams. So, whatever that's a fascinating style of play, by the way, it's really fascinating. I'm really interested. And by the and way, do you, do you think that the
2: Celtics, specifically, like, I mean, obviously, they kind of they were the blew, best
4: defensive team in the NBA the second but, half of the you season, no, and
2: that's always what how I've kind of considered them all season. And then they blew my mind by sh- like taking like 22 like three point attempts or something like that in that game seven, like, uh, game six, game six, it was game, game six, six. Yeah, yeah, um, so I, I mean, our are we going to see more of that or is is that kind of an outlier in terms of either either in terms of
4: kind of their actual
2: success or um, just as a strategy, I
4: think the Celtics have been just from what I've seen. I saw a lot of that series against the Bucks. I think they're under. They've underutilized the three. I think they've got a lot of guys that can shoot the three. I think Tatum can shoot the three. Brown can shoot the three. Williams can shoot the three. We know both Williams can shoot the three. Smart can shoot the three. Their backup center Teese can shoot the three. They've got a lot of guys that can shoot the well, three.
1: Well, so let's let's see what you think for the series because that that one tips tonight. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon and. And last I saw, the Heat were favored. They're they're favored by two, I think it is. So what's
4: interesting is for the series, Boston is plus two hundred to win the title right now, and the Heat are plus four thirty two. Hmm. So that has Boston as a two to one favorite. I mean, mm-hmm. two to one advantage essentially over the Heat. Yeah, that's surprising, especially given what Kay just said, mm-hmm. which is in Game One the Heat are favored, which I assume that means the Heat are going to be favored in game two, Right. which I assume, since they're the home team, the Heat will be favored in four of the games, but there are...
1: Yeah, I don't understand.
4: That's okay. going to yeah. be hard to
2: rationalize Well, there. I mean, maybe maybe we're sort of continuing to confront through both our hockey and basketball discussion that the gambling odds right now don't seem particularly rational. I mean, to my kind of more casual observer kind of eyes, I, I kind of feel like this is, this is the most wide-open Final Four In basketball, we've had... Is that it, I've won't,
1: won't people think the Boston is kind of the big favorite here we've been uh, we were abusing 538 but let's see what 538 yeah. says yeah and mine's
2: then, not from 538 by the no, way no yeah and I guess I'm I'm, I'm just kind of hearkening back to sort of the years of you know Golden State yeah. and Cleveland yeah. and all these ones where it's kind of like you could talk yourself into those teams not winning at all yeah but you had to talk yourself into it whereas I, I feel like it's more wide open it, now it, 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 maybe it, it, the gambling it, odds don't reflect that maybe well, I'm the too naive 538 doesn't oh reflect God. it either we, we were talking oh, about Last right.
1: week, um, and I mean, the the team that was counterbalancing Boston in 538's numbers was knocked out. Wait, wait, it was before the you Suns. tell this,
4: so I'm looking at it too. Was it the Suns? Wh- wh- yeah, which team do you think 538 has as the lowest probability of the four of winning the finals? The lowest of the four, I guess, Dallas, right? What do you think? You would think?
1: have thought, you would have it's thought
4: not. it's
3: not, huh. The Warriors, the
1: Warriors.
3: Oh, of but, course. Will they shrink back pretty heavily to the season, I suppose. I suppose but that's Dallas true. But Dallas had an but, even worse record than the
4: Warriors. Yeah. Warriors were the three. Dallas was the four. The Warriors had a better season than Dallas, but they have the Dallas. They have,
1: they have them as a stronger power ranking, but the bigger number, the lead here, is that they have the Celtics' 63% chance to win the whole thing. I mean,
4: 63%. <laughs> I mean, I
2: love 538, but they're... That, that their man, playoff sim has been whack this season, man. Well, this
1: they have been loving the Celtics for a long time, and and significantly more from than the other three teams. The Other yeah. three teams they have their power rankings relatively flat, yeah. like you're saying, Shane, pretty open. But then a different tier. They had the Celtics on a different tier.
2: No, and I mean, I, I you know, I, I I guess I would have said. I would have had the Celtics. I, I think the Celtics are my kind of champion favorite to the extent that I have a favorite. But yeah, my my in my mind my probabilities At are like, 40%. you know, 40%, 35, 20, yeah. 20, 15 or something like that. Not like 60 and then the rest of them split up the remaining 40. Well,
1: one of the things that you're working with as a statistician is you just want to be regressive. It's the way yeah. we were talking about those hockey series. And but the thing is basketball is the least noisy of the, of the tournament, of the playoffs. I mean, this, we've Agreed. known this for years and years. Agreed. And we, I mean, the, the statisticians will run the numbers and tell us it's true. So there is less regression just due to noise in this sport than the other ones. And maybe we're, like, overdoing it. Maybe with that much separation between Boston and the other three teams, they really aren't that big a favorite. It's hard to imagine. But is
2: Boston that much demonstrative? Like, I understand... Basketball has, you know, is is more predictable in the sense that when you have a, a good team going up against, you know, a truly better team going up against a truly worse team, the truly better team wins more often well, than in other sports. True, but we don't know. I, I mean, I feel like that, Shane, I hear you, yeah. especially
1: when you look at the betting line on yeah. tonight's game. I mean, they get home field or home court, but what's yeah. home court? worth is it not that much to get a two-point favorite tonight two points favorite tonight does not suggest a huge right. categorical difference between these yeah. two teams before we leave basketball tell me about Doncic. how much fun is it going to be to have him still around he's been a monster in the playoffs in his career right is that a thing do we have enough of a sample to say that's actually a thing
2: can we uh, can we
4: fold the olympics into it too or he was amazing yeah i think what you'd also have to say though is i mean i watched obviously the suns game against the mavericks He had the same number of points as the Suns did in the first half. So he had 27, and the Suns had 27 in the first half, which was fascinating. (laughs) But here's the thing that I also—and this is to Dallas' credit. This is why it's a little hard to assess, because I don't know in the regular season, but advanced stats would tell us this. He literally was—if it's not 100%, it was over 90%. Like, he touches the ball in every play. So let's be clear. It could be that his stats are better— because he's just touching the ball more in the playoffs than he does during the regular season. So basically what they run is they run the old weave, which means he gets the ball at the top of the key and then directs the offense on every offensive play that isn't a fast break. So he may have a usage rate that's 30% higher in the playoffs, which is why his points are up 30% and his assists are up 30%. So I, what I don't know is is his player efficiency rating up. I don't know if his shot percentage is up. You'd expect it to but be yeah, down. Cr- cr- I
2: mean, credit to him if his efficiency ra- efficiency rating doesn't doesn't even just go down. I mean, maintain the same efficiency would be amazing rating, against rating the better that teams. That higher end would be impressive. Right. right. All right.
1: Good fun. Uh, good fun. I mean, I you know we can't kind of, the first round of the NBA wasn't that interesting. We kind of just kind of suffer it, and then. The first round of hockey turned out to be great fun. By the way, just so, this
4: is enough, Lodge, and just thanks for Matt for putting it on our phones. Uh, Luca's played 23 playoff games in his career. He's averaging 32.7 points, 9.3 rebounds, and 8.3 assists. That's amazing.
1: Exactly. That's, so the question is, that enough of a sample yes. to react to yet?
2: Can you give me yes. some historical, like, what well, There like, yeah, would be no... Us, but, well, so Jordan, 32.7 us,
4: points would probably be... I Like, I what could, did Giannis do, like, last... Last season
2: that would be kind of a that good would be comparable. Right? It would
4: be a comparable to what Giannis did last Giannis season. Because Giannis even well. in the last series Giannis was did.
2: amazing. He like scored so He was like two hundred oh, no. points, like hundred rebounds. Remarkable. I don't think anybody in locks. There, I, I think the 5%, I don't do do do
1: think career playoff
2: numbers? I don't think
4: anybody in their career has averaged that many points. If it is, it's right near Jordan's. I okay. think 32-33 is the maximum so I can put it on our phones. Um but again this is exactly these would be historic numbers if, if he were to hold this for his career. Okay. That's something to cheer for.
2: <laughs> All right.
4: All right. Good fun.
1: NBA, NHL. What other sports do we have? A few minutes before the end of Q2. What else is on your mind? Well,
4: let me just quickly. So this week is the PGA Championship in golf. Yeah, yeah, right. And so um, Tiger Woods is back on the course. He says he feels much better than he did at the Masters for whatever that's worth. So and by let's the way,
1: recap the Masters. He he made the cut.
4: Easily made the cut. He shot 71-71. So he was under par. La-
1: he was laboring coming up the 36th hole. Then he shot 78-78.
4: Yeah, and
1: had a bad weekend.
4: Right, had a bad weekend. But he says he feels a lot better. We'll see how that goes. Um, I I know the betting odds for him to make the cut are minus 140. So they have him as a favorite, let's say even 60% to make the cut, which seems optimistic to me, but either way. But I love what they do with the pairings. So his first round pairings, he's playing with Rory McElroy and Jordan Spieth. Mm-hmm. That is tremendous. And like Scotty Scheffler, your guy, Mister Texas, mm-hmm. is playing with like Colin Morikawa and I forget whoever else. Like, well, they're just and maybe John Rahm.
1: They're th- just they're just grouping high end guys. There's nothing like clever about it. No, 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 no.
4: But I'm saying they're grouping high end yeah, guys. Yeah, like don't right. I mean? Could you imagine the crowd? Tiger Woods is playing with Spieth and McIlroy. Yeah. Oh, do, or okay. Scotty Scheffler with more car and rum. So I mean, by, come on.
1: Why do, what what has Spieth done lately to justify getting into that group? I, mean, well, for, I guess you could say the same thing about Rory. You could... Yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, mean, just, I was know, thinking
4: about it yesterday. Rory take a five-year window, it's well, still... Well, look, yeah. if I joke... Tiger Woods has won a major more recently than either of the two <laughs> of those right. guys, that's right. and, and that's and also Spieth. By the way, just came in second again last week at the Byron Nelson, and he's like
1: twenty five under. What was this tournament? This this, this was uh, the, by, I know. that was a course he knows. There might even be his home course. I mean, yeah. he's from Dallas.
4: By the way, the guy that won K H Lee. Won the tournament also last year, which was interesting. Wait, he was mm-hmm. 25 under and he was second? Correct. The that's guy true. won By was still, 26 under. I, I threw a number out okay, there. So I knew it was in the 20s. Still, it was somewhere like that. Wow. No, no, but I think, you know, you're right. I think Spieth's had a very, very, very good year. Um, but yeah, historically, I mean, it's three major winners. You know, Speeth has three majors, McIlroy four, obviously Tiger 15. Obviously between Rom, Morikawa, and uh, Scheffler, you have probably the most exciting, I mean, I don't know how you could get a more exciting group yeah. than that one. Well, I'm still getting you're, you're used to in May.
1: Yeah. Right? So this is the move that they used. They were always August. They were the first. Correct. They were kind of an afterthought. And we had this gap in the major calendar exactly. between the U.S. Open and Masters. And, so, and around the pandemic, they decided to bump it into
2: this slot. Do you think that actually – like for somebody like Tiger, who's obviously like you know, kind of – you know, guy, he has sort of a physical. You know, is physically maybe not there with some of the other guys. Is this? Is it advantageous to have it now versus in August?
1: No, he, I think he would take more rehab time. He would take all that he could get.
2: Even though it would come more rapidly, but then it would be like you I know think once I don't know I it would yeah. be like a, a longer sort of
1: full season, season. Yeah. like
4: if 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 Tiger's season now is just the majors
1: I would think you would he more prefer time. to have I would have it? thought more time
4: I don't know I would think that given he's only going to play he's never yeah. going to play in between them anymore probably yeah that's why I would kind. say once a month for four straight months might be as optimal like he plays the Masters in April he plays the PJ in May U S Open in June. And Maybe. the British Open in Nor- July. Nor- he might actually, once a month, might be the optimal cadence to keep some sort of rhythm, but actually have enough time to recover. I
1: don't disagree with that in general, but recovering from this car wreck is a different thing. And yeah, he's like sure. major rehab, yeah. and I think he needs all the time. he could, By the way, just yeah.
4: quickly back to... Michael Jordan, 33.4 points per game in his playoff career. Luka Doncic, second at 32.7. Then just come a few guys, Allen Iverson, Kevin Durant, Jerry West, LeBron James. So Luka's second, point seven behind Michael Jordan. And I'm making a prediction after this series, he will be ahead of Michael Jordan average Why? just well, because of and, his usage rate.
1: But he's also impressive in that he's got other almost double-digit stats as Correct. well. And, and Jordan would have the same, I'm guessing. Not
4: an assist. Jordan would be more about, I'll call it six and six. Jordan okay. was not more than a 6-6 six and six guy in his career. But anyway, I'm excited about the PGA. I think it's really exciting. I'm also interested to see the one shame I have. Is I've become a Scotty Scheffler fan because of his story. And what I'm his disappointed. His story being,
1: of, being University of Texas?
4: No, not that. <laughs> Just what a the, compelling no, no, no. What <laughs> his, a compelling mo- origin his story. Mo- his momentum story and how he started, momentum. he couldn't win. And then once he won, yeah. he's now winning them in bunches. But
1: Couldn't win. He was like 17. You're holding against these can't win things. Like he's been on
0: the tour for three years.
1: He's
4: got momentum. I'm with Eric on this. But one. He's currently got I'm momentum. I'm worried that, no. So now I'm worried that it was too long since he played last. I'm worried that his momentum is gone. Oh. I was hoping for he trust me, he would have rather the PGA been the week after the Masters. I don't think right. there's any doubt about it.
1: Well, we're going to find out. You're right, it was very hot and and we have looked at some 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 of the historical stats and guys do have these cycles in golf and we know that decay rates matter in the prediction models. So We've got, I mean, Spieth has been sneaking up there. We talked about him earlier. He is tied for fourth best odds, fourth shortest odds with Kalamurakawa and Justin Thomas. I mean, that is a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty odd sheet. That's for dang sure. Scotty Scheffler is the lead, leader up there, plus 1,100. John Rahm, plus 1,200. Rahm went about a year without a victory after being.
4: Right, hand, just won in Mexico.
1: Hands down top golf from the world a year ago. He went a year without it, just one. So if you believe in momentum, he might be your play, Eric. Rory, who just can't get it done these yeah, days, that's... but, but he's, he's knocking around, and yeah. he's got short odds. He's the third shortest odds at plus 1,400. So at least before they tee off on Thursday, this looks like a lot of fun. The PGA historically has been kind of the least glamorous champion list. Yes. And one of the reasons for that is that they have these very large fields, and it's the kind of the opposite of the Masters, where you got to be a top seventy-five golfer or higher because you got a bunch 50 of fifty
4: plus the winners yeah, is exactly. the Masters.
1: So, so it's prettier now than it probably will be on Sunday, but it is a lot of fun. Yeah, I think the
4: PGA has something like I think the Masters is something like ninety, and the PGA is something like one hundred and fifty. Yeah, wow. exactly. it's a lot of golfers.
1: It's a big difference. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break.
3: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the second half, third quarter, another open line segment, a little shorter. We're going to go about 15 minutes before dropping into an interview with Seth Partnow. Famed basketball analyst, Seth Partnow. We have just covered NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, and a bit of golf. The second major championship of the year is this weekend, Southern Hills, Oklahoma. There are some other sports. They may not be in the playoffs, but they still need attention. They need care, these other sports. Eric's got a couple of his favorites. Before we turn the world over to baseball.
4: Well, just quickly, I, obviously, the French Open starts this weekend, starts Sunday. Ob- ob- obviously, well, this is the time of the year, the French Open, and so this is one of the more wide-open French Opens, only because obviously, for 13 out of 14 years, Rafa Nadal won. The only year he didn't win is he had a fluke loss in 2009 in the second round to Robin Soderling, but otherwise, he pretty much won every year.
1: Hello, why? Why? What was? It sounds well, Soderling because he was lost, like but
4: 140th in the world, so I mean, it's, how did it happen? Uh, the other guy won three sets before Nadal I don't did. understand. How did he had that... a big serve, and Nadal just had a very, very, very off day. Okay. There was nothing. There was no injury. He just had it's an off It's
2: incredible it hasn't happened more often. More often on just clay. Randomly.
4: Do yeah. they have
1: statistics for tennis where you say, based on this guy's unfor- unforced eras, at least, maybe based on shot placement pace, you could say expected win probability against an average player, just from like watching one guy's performance is that a thing
4: i that's a good question i would say the answer would be no because you know your shot placement let's put up against Djokovic. against the average player yes but against a specific player like you could show someone's shot placement if you tell me they're playing Djokovic versus i don't even know even another top 10 player like casper rude who's number six now the, the win percentage would be so different just because their ability to speed, ability to get to the ball, ability to hit shots from where they get the ball. Okay. So, no, it's not just about where you're hitting the ball. You really have to know the okay. movement of the other And let player. me also
1: say, probably your performance is hugely influenced by what the other guy is doing to you. Oh, yeah. and so it's like, hard to condition that out.
4: This is the issue that's always been with Djokovic, which is that he's so quick. He can hit shots from so far all over. You have to hit lines. Now that means you're also going to hit a lot of out balls. And so you have to hit the ball so precise to win just a single point against him that's the difference. But the okay. reason I'm excited about the French this year is I'd argue there's three co-favorites on the men's side this year. And the women's side, well, on the, men, the women's side, I assume Iga Swiatek, who's now won, she's got the third longest streak in the history of women's tennis. She's won 28 consecutive matches oh including the Australian. She's the number 1 in the world. She's won the last 5 tournaments she's played. She has to be the massive heavy favorite on the women's side. I mean, she's been obliterating the top other 10 women. On the men's How, how old is she? 20.
1: We've got these young stars on both sides. Correct, That's interesting. and she's
4: okay. only won one major, but it is the French, mm-hmm. so she's she's got to be the heavy, heavy favorite. Well, he well, the, she just won the Australian too. You said no. Let me think yeah. about it. If she won, oh sorry, she must have two then. Yeah. She did just win the Australian, so she's uh, she, right because um, why well, can't think of her name? The the Australian woman that retired who was number one in the oh, world.
1: Yeah, right, right.
4: Uh, I, I'll think of her name in a second. Uh, retired and so Swantic is now that is now the is now the, okay. the number 1. But on the men's side there has to be three co-favorites. You always have to have Nadal as one of the favorites. Djokovic is number 1 in the world and just won the Italian Open. And the third has to be Carlos Alcaraz mm-hmm. who just beat two weeks prior, didn't play last week, two weeks prior just beat Nadal, Djokovic And I think it was Sitsipas or Zverev, in the finals, three in a row.
1: This is the 19-year-old phenom out of Spain. Correct. Okay.
4: And the betting odds actually have them pretty close. They have uh, Djokovic at plus 162, Alcaraz at plus 175, and Nadal at plus 225. Wow. And let's also remember Sitsipas, who they have at plus 550, you guys probably don't remember this, he was up two sets and a break against Djokovic in the French Open final last year. He was up mm-hmm. two sets to love and a break in the third set, and Djokovic came back and won. So you can't rule him out as a total non-entity. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, four or five holds away from winning. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why the French Open's really exciting this year.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm, I, we need to get on this Akaraz train because everyone's talking about him. I had dinner with some friends last night. One is a big, so- uh, big tennis fan, and even his. Five-year-old boy was saying, Akras, fabulous, fabulous.
4: <laughs> and the other thing we'll have to see just quickly is whether Djokovic can put together... Nadal's got some injury issues right now, so I'm less confident of him as I normally would be. Can even Djokovic, at his soon-to-be age of 35, can he put together seven good five-set matches? Yeah. It's not obvious that mm-hmm. he won't have that, you know, bimodal distribution by age that do I always you, do talk think about.
3: 19-years-olds favors... Is a favorite as a help for a in a five set match or a hindrance? Yes. And a thirty five year old Djokovic. I don't know. I mean, Joker is an
2: endurance, you would think. You, or no, stamina.
3: But it's, but it's speed that goes away with age and it's endurance that sticks oh. around. Well, maybe it was good for you, then it's sticking
2: around for you. I, I feel like stamina. I don't know. It's just too well, you can't make inferences but... <laughs> about you know, yeah, it's amateurs. But...
3: but Djokovic is a machine. I mean that guy. That's that's the one
4: thing that he has What's better than else. actually interesting, else. He, un, if you had told me that up until this last tournament they played the Italian Open, by the way, Djokovic's fitness was terrible. Ah, he admitted, a matter okay. of fact, he, but he's had a couple of weeks to heavily train now. That's why I'm less concerned, and also I think he'll get in better shape as the tournament goes on. But no, I would take Alcaraz's fitness and endurance over Djokovic, especially, by the way, if it comes down to a fifth set between the two of them and the draw hasn't come out. I don't know if they're going to meet. I don't know if they're on opposite sides of the draw. They could also meet in the potentially even the quarterfinals. They couldn't be earlier than that, but they could meet in the quarterfinals. I, I'm going to, fa- I really think I'd like Alcaraz in that match. I do.
1: So, Eric, you want to talk about the Preakness, I know.
4: The only thing I want to talk about with that is we know that Rich Strike won the Derby. Rich Strike is not racing in the Preakness. Epicenter, which was the horse that was the favorite in the Derby, which was leading the Derby until this other horse came out of nowhere, is 6-5 to five to win the Preakness. Now, that seems like the odds of a horse that actually won the Derby. So I'm just wondering, if you just remove Rich Strike, can we pretend like Epicenter won the Derby when thinking about its odds to win the Preakness? Because like the horse, the only horse that beat it is not in the race. That's... It ran the race. Everyone thought it would run. Just okay. This other horse ran much faster. My
1: reserve I like that a lot, but for the fact that it, it, he was that horse was neck and neck with its other the other favorite before Strike came up on the rail. So Agreed. is that other horse in the Preakness? It's
4: a good question. I think the answer is no. Okay. I think there's epicenter. I think there's only two other horses, a horse that came in 4th and maybe a horse that came in 14th. Mm-hmm. So I don't think no. I think the answer and that, is no. Okay. And this and that, is the shorter one, right? It is. Right.
1: and it's going to have a much smaller field in general than the Derby. I, I'm no, just everything making this up. I think it derby. has
4: nine horses yeah. instead of 14, and yeah. then the Belmont has, like, three. So, yeah, three. I mean, if, you, if you were to come up with a power rankings for the <laughs> – <laughs> easy to finish in, in the top three. It does feel like
1: there weren't very many – That's why
4: I like betting win, place, or show on the, derby, on the, uh, on the uh, Belmont, because I know I'm getting it right.
1: <laughs> just want to be right. I don't care what the payoff is. But has... either way,
4: I, I was just saying, could you literally statistically just think of it as – yeah, of the horses still in the race, it won the race, and therefore, let's just count it as if it won. I don't know. Is there anything? I mean, I would, I would,
2: I would, I would count it based on what was happening at the same length as the freakness, right?
3: I don't know. I'm not know enough about horse racing, but you you argue that he ran a bad race, right? Somehow that is, no, that, is no, that. No, no, no. that someone talking about the, No, F- no, Sector no. They, ran and, the race. We thought no, he was they did. But won. somehow. How did Rich Strike win this race? Was it a complete out of this world fluke, or did Epicenter not realize he was no. coming up? Or no, and, no. yeah, no,
1: no yeah. neither of those things. Yeah. Rich Strike just ran a great race. It was a yeah. better horse that day for sure.
4: Better horse that okay.
1: day. Okay, what about baseball and Shane? Do we have any hope, or is this like this going to this, this horrible Yankees? Tsunami oh, for the, the AL East,
2: I'm starting
3: to lose hope. But there's a
2: lot of other no, exciting I mean the things season. going around I mean in the baseball. I yeah. know, well, you know, since, since
3: we last met, uh, the Yankees really haven't lost much, maybe one game since then. Did you
1: start the streak with that 3-0 comeback in the ninth when you were there? Right after our show. No.
3: That no, was, no, then, they were ready on an enormous, like, enormous streak. On the streak but yeah. what's interesting, was a couple of things have happened. The, the Dodgers have taken a little bit of a turn. Not that they're doing badly, but they're not in the 700 range they were before. Um, and actually, got whooped by the Phillies, led, led by four. led by Harper's just yeah. unbelievable torching of the of the so Dodgers, Bryce which is interesting Bryce Harper's an
2: example of a person that is going to be exciting to watch this season. I mean, A, I, I think I don't know I, I, for the more kind of Phillies fans out there, how do you feel about Bryce Harper and his contract? Pretty good at this point. He's he got been an MVP, super worth it yeah. so far, yeah. more yeah. than worth it so far. Right. And now that they have the DH in the NL. He could honestly, I mean, if he has another six, seven seasons like he's been doing, he's in the Hall of
4: Fame. I I do think he's going to be in the Hall of Fame, but I will say the following. Um, I'm concerned because if you look at the pre-PED era, it was really starting at about age 34, 35 that the big-time sluggers um, actually start to decline Mm -hmm. quite precipitously. So he may have three or four more years. He's only 29. (laughs) <laughs> all right. Well then, well, then all of a sudden, I'm, Hans, wow. what? Yeah, it was a 13 year contract, right? So yes. 10 yeah. more years. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling good. How about, if I, certain, I agree about you. the
2: last few seasons of I'm, that contract? I'm feeling probably be good bad.
4: about the next five or six yeah. years of that contract, the four or five after that. Yeah. I don't know. But
3: here, you know, you point out the DH. It's interesting because War hates DHs, and he's immediately going to take a hit. If he played in the outfield and played at average, he'd be much better off, at least in the statistical pantheon than if he had, if he continues in place DH, oh yeah, it's
2: just I just a, think his it's chance like to playing that up. many years in a key Because right. like, he's probably going to be. I mean, you know, it's going to be on the surface. A lot of the counting stats is but, the argument will be but made. But
4: why don't we talk about what we talk about every year on this show? The Yankees right now look good to win the AL East. I agree with that. But here's the question: When it comes down to the playoffs, do you count on? I think Garrett Cole you can probably count on. They've got Severino. And I think the you guys haven't even it. mentioned their best pitcher Ooh. Cortez. Come Nance, on, <laughs> nasty Nestor no, Cortez. No, no, no. I'm just saying though. So that's but do it. we? But do you all agree? That's the question about the 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 World Yankee, Series. The way. No, no, it's no. Fine. Place. No, no. I'm, okay, that's fine. But you're you agree? It's going to come down to whether Cole Severino and Cortez can do it mm-hmm. during the playoffs. Yeah. That's it. If, yeah, if not, it, there's no. Cause no, cause no actually, actually I mean, for me, you're looking it, way. You're
2: looking ahead to a lot of
3: coin flips. To me, the biggest question mark I have with the Yankees is not so much the, the starting pitching rotation or the back end with the relief. It's the unbelievable high variance of his lineup. Mm-hmm. So if you look at what is causing, in my mind, the, the just runaway victories, is that with Judge and Stanton both kind of on fire at the same time, it's it's a brutal lineup. Yeah. The top of the lineup. The bottom of the lineup is terrible and potentially can be awful. Oh, the Yankees? And,
4: yes. Yeah. And all I, around the Mendoza line.
3: I I can I'm concerned that in a in a playoff if if Judge and Stanton are pushed down a bit, there's just nothing going on at the back.
2: Hmm. No, and it's true their ability to kind of manufacture runs at times when the big hitters are struggling is still not I mean It's not there. For for a similar sized payroll, the Dodgers have put together a better kind of overall team, Great point. I think. I think. So, you know, and I mean those the those are the only two teams in that same payroll stratosphere, so, you know, but uh but I do think that, you know, I mean, the Yankees hitters are streaky, no doubt about it. But, I mean, you know, if they're streaking at the right time.
4: The yeah, playoffs. but I think the challenge is, right, as I think as Adi pointed, if you have, the other team has great pitching, which they're likely to have, and they can you can pitch to Judge and Stanton, everybody else in the Yankees, is either not a power hitter, like LeMay, who's a good hitter, mm-hmm. but he's not the hitter he was two or three years ago, or is a two hundred and fifty and below hitter. You can pitch to Rizzo, yeah. you can pitch, pitch to, to any- Donaldson. Donaldson, you can pitch to anybody at the bottom Torres. of the line, Torres. So now you've got five or six hitters that you're not that excited about as a Yankee yeah, fan. Yeah, but I
2: think almost every team, on the AL side at least that they would potentially face in the playoffs, you can make a similar narrative or talk about their bullpen or whatever. I mean, I think you guys yeah. are proactively making up narratives for the coin flips that the playoffs <laughs> way, are let's anyway. let's do our
4: plus-minus again. We did this at the beginning of the season. So now the Yankees, I think, are 26-9 and nine going into tonight's game. Matter of fact, I know that's their record, yeah. okay? That's like a 740 win percentage, yeah. which if it held for the whole season, be like, okay, they're not going to win 120 no. games. But yeah. right now... It's the exact mirror image of the Reds' record, by the way, 9-26. Yeah, 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 that's great. The, the, the prediction for the Yankees right now is 101 wins. Are you taking the over or the under? 101. I'm taking the over at this point. They've accumulated so many. Well, that's what I looked at. So there are five wins above, if you'd like. There are five wins above 60%, which would be 97 mm. So I think there, I'm. I think 101 is a good prediction yeah. right now. 101
3: is good, but I would take the over, but just slightly. If you had, if you said 103, I'd probably take the under.
1: Me and FanGraphs are still taking the under here. 97, 97. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe FanGraphs number.
3: That's the problem with FanGraphs. I mean, they make an assumption about how your your preseason valuation or power ranking has changed, and. The Yankees, I think, are clearly a better, better. Team no, and I mean, like the thing that
2: argues the over for me is not just that the Yankees have accumulated so many wins so far, but it's like compared to our preseason expectations. I think there's two terrible teams now
4: in the AL East instead of but the one. Speaking that we of, was just building have, on that, <laughs> uh, that terrible team. Yeah. That we should just quickly talk about the fact that a team threw a no hitter and lost. Yeah, which yes. was the first. This is the Reds against the Pirates. Mm-hmm. I think it was the Reds that threw the no hitter, right, and lost the game one to nothing. The Reds threw a no hitter. And lost the, the game 1-0. to nothing. You yeah.
1: know, People were mocking them already, and then that goes out and happens. And I think it's the
4: first time that it happened since 2008 is what I had seen. It's crazy that it happens at all. It's such a weird And that Cincinnati event. loses it,
3: of all teams. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> they poor,
4: poor
3: Pittsburgh, too.
2: It's but I think the that. other
4: thing just quickly we're seeing is we have a bimodal season. There's six teams above 60%. There's six teams below 40%. We're going to see greatness and weakness.
1: Well, as long as there's a lot of great teams, it'll be interesting. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us for an interview with Seth Part now after the break.
3: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter, our interview segment since the beginning of. COVID-19. And this week it is also our interview segment. We have Seth now joining us. Seth, longtime friend of the show. He's been on any number of times over the years, all the way back to when he was director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. Seth, good to see I you.
0: Think, I, you as well. I think the first time I came on was, was before, even before even that. I think yeah. it was when I was still I'm still writing at Nylon Calculus. I think right when the show started, I think I, I, I could I, I believe that. On, so.
1: I can totally believe that. All the different life stages we've seen you through, Seth. I'm, I'm just—it's really been a journey. It's been a journey. <laughs> hey, speaking of which, I'm seeing in the bio that you guys are public now about your being at StatsBomb. We've had Ted on Ted back in the day, the founder or co-founder of StatsBomb. So you guys are—you and Knutson and the team—are branching from soccer, kind of his origins in soccer, into basketball now. Is that right?
0: Uh, that's right well first we're doing uh we're doing american football now actually is Mm -hmm. is the 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 i've actually been having to to learn football from a data perspective over the last couple months myself which is uh you never realize how little you know about a sport until you try to create data about that sport (laughs) i can believe so uh, very much learning uh about that and then we are in the we're, we're uh Getting uh, getting going on on doing a basketball product as well. So
1: so what when you say doing football and doing basketball, I think of StatsBomb first and foremost. First anyway, I think of them as like a data source. Is that safe? So what, what do you guys mean? And we'll, we'll move quickly, but just one a little more world word on StatsBomb in the world of like sports vendor sports data vending. What do you mean by doing basketball or doing football, American football?
0: So currently we we create uh the industry leading data spec we say uh, on on uh, I think I think the number is now 104 different soccer competitions someone someone is going to call me and, and yell at me and say I got that number wrong but mm-hmm. a lot of different soccer competitions around around the world uh we create um uh, data that's used by uh, uh over 100 teams and media partners and, and other groups to better inform them about what the events that make up a soccer game mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, soccer unlike a lot of north american sports is not a, a game that has had a lot of defined events right. um had like there everyone would recognize you know things that happen in the game but they had they had been cataloged and collated uh really consistently up, up before you know Several years ago, and 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 we've done that and do it at a large scale of games, and we're taking a similar approach to first football and then basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's an interesting sort of a choice you have to make early when you're, do be do moving into uh, becoming a data uh, data provider, a data company, is our how much are you you producing data versus analyzing data yeah, right. and. There's not always a hard and fast line, but um, we try to much more provide information that allows the experts with the team, with a with a media organization, with a with a gambling syndicate to you know make their own decisions to answer their own own questions because mm-hmm. they know the things they know their specific problems better than we do um mm-hmm. it's it's not always a hard and fast line it, it, like just in terms of choosing what you're going to catch capture and and collate and, and how you're going to present it there are some some bits of analysis and decisions that are going into there but mm-hmm. as much as possible we try to err on the side of p- being as objective as provo- possible saying this is what happened and right. then providing the tools to allow you to interrogate that data to right you get more specific about whatever the the like the the whether it's soccer whether it's football whether it's basketball what 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 the problem you're trying to solve is
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well we look forward to hearing for more on on the work as you go into both american football and um, basketball listen one other piece to catch up on before we dive into the playoffs uh, the Mid-Range Theory, your book that came out in the past year, um, in the fall maybe, was it, in the fall? How, yeah,
0: right, uh, it was November. Okay, yeah. so
1: right in time for the start of the NBA season. How do you, what have you learned since that thing came out? How's it been received? What kind of feedback? Anything interesting? Any interesting comments? Any, what about your experience with that book?
0: Uh, so I have to say that the feedback from the book has been, has been I, I've been blown away, frankly, by really? how how positive it's been. Um Sort of the the most unexpected thing, and this happened to me twice in the last, I don't know, I want to say about six weeks, is a uh, a professor at a at a college has called me up and said, "Hey, uh, we're using your book as a textbook in our in our uh, one of them was a sports analytics, one of them was a sports writing class. We're using our earbook oh, wow. as a textbook." You want to come speak to our class and like I'm like wait you're forcing your students to buy like 20 copies of course I will come speak to your class but but I, but I, but I'm just tremendously humbled that 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 you know that would be someone read it and thought that highly of it that yep. this is I will use this to educate my students mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's been the cool bit um, there's definitely some things that like. I was, I was wrong about um, like right up at the start. I, I, there's a, a note about like, I am not really sure what was going on in the 2020, 2021 season. Cause of, you know, it was weird cause of, 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 you know, the, 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 the COVID bubble. stuff. But when we get back to, when we get back to 21, 22, like we'll get back to normal and really be able to analyze stuff. And then this with the, you know, especially in the first half of the year with all the, the, the COVID absences and stuff, uh, this has been one of the harder years to to analyze and use to use regular season data to predict the okay. playoffs okay. ever. So my my we'll be back to we'll be back to really being able to tell no stuff soon. Uh, took all of you know a month to be wrong.
2: Right. Is that a function not just of the COVID situation, but also I kind of feel like you know baseball is in kind of a different kind of Baseball. period right of oh, sorry basketball is in a different kind of period right now where there seems to be greater kind of parity at least among you know the top sort of teams in the league as well that probably makes you know kind of prediction in the playoffs more challenging even even without like the extra kind of uncertainty that you know covid and all this type of stuff has imposed do you kind of feel that way as well no,
0: I, I think that's right I think there's and there's a third thing that's going on too and that's I think that um that for a number of reasons, playoff basketball it diverges. It, it has always diverged somewhat from regular season basketball. I think that gap is getting wider. So um, you throw those three things together, and it's it. You know, I had less of a handle on what I thought was going to happen in the playoffs this year.
1: Well, r- tell us about Didn't that real season, quickly. What what are the ways in which basketball diverges in the playoffs from regular season? How should we think about it differently? How should we think about the playoffs as we dive in? And to what extent can we just chuck the one through eight seeds as they roll into the playoffs?
0: So I think the the analogy I like to use, and it it, uh, it it makes most sense to me, is a poker analogy. Is that you you know there's kind of two poles of your style of play as a player. You can either be you know game theory optimal, which so I'm sitting down at this table. I don't know I know nothing about the people I'm playing, but against the entire population of players, how will I play my hands to maximize profit? And then there's uh, exploitive play, which is okay. I know I'm playing against you, and I know you how you play. Yeah. How am I going to play to take the most money from you? And like the regular season, you're, you're playing three, four games a week, you know, in different cities, different teams. And so you kind of have your strategies that are, you know, you can tweak here and there. But it's basically this is how we're going to play that's going to win the most games against the other 29 teams. You get to the playoffs, uh, you have, you know, I don't want to say unlimited, but you have an extensive time, time and energy to prepare for one team. And both that prep time and the fact that that one specific team does specific things – which you then alter your strategy for okay so it, it almost
1: good. Well, a follow-up question. so I, I understand that and that's very plain, but then I, who does that advantage? Are there styles of play or players or coaches that, that are differentiated more in that environment?
4: On
0: the coaching standpoint, I think it's it's the ability to take and evaluate risk. Um, is Because you've got to change stuff. You have to decide whether something, like, know when something isn't working or when it's about to work, um, what's worth trying, what isn't. Um, so make, having that Seth, sort of flexibility.
1: Make that a little more concrete. What's an example of a, a risk that an NBA coach is evaluating in the playoffs?
0: Uh, you, uh, say you want to, we're going to double team this ball handler every time he, he comes off a pick and roll. Um, that obviously uh, gives up an advantage situation somewhere else on the floor. Um, you know, there are teams that that will do that with some degree of regularity in the regular season, but sometimes in the playoffs, it's like, okay, we can't cover this guy one on one. We can't defend screen and roll like in a standard way. We have to get the ball out of his hands, so we're going to try to trap him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're going to. You can phrase it as we're going to dare someone else to beat us. Well, yeah. you get deep into the playoffs, other the teams are good enough that the other guys are probably fully capable of beating you it's just a matter of of which one is more likely to do so and and figuring out when and how to take those risks and okay well we 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 trapped we trapped the ball handler twice and they scored um is this something that just doesn't work or do we stick with it and it'll balance out like those decisions are very hard yeah. and that's, that's a simple one, but it's everything from matchups to lineups to rotations, to choosing what place to call the target, which opponent defenders, um, it, 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 the, the strategic complexity because of the specificity of the preparation um, just ramps up. Um, so, I don't, uh, exponentially is probably correct.
1: So in a couple of analogies in golf, harder courses separate the players better, so they kind of differentiate the best better. If you play an easy course, everyone's going to stack up kind of at the top. So is, is one way of thinking about the playoffs that it's a harder road because these teams can study you so well. And and almost by definition, then the better teams are more easily separated. A harder exam, you know, if you gave too easy an exam, everybody's going to ace it and it won't separate the top players. So that's possibly one analogy. The other one I'm curious about is, I, we, we just talked briefly last week on the show about this idea of, heaviness mattering in the nhl playoffs and by heaviness it was literally both body size or at least weight and style of play and it's just a hypothesis that a writer at the athletic has pursued and looked at empirically if you were to state you know an analogous hypothesis for the nba playoffs like how might we operationalize the style of play or the team composition that would that would identify a factor that matters more in the playoffs than in regular season, if there is such a thing.
0: I, I think that, that um, you know, some people, you can call it physicality, you can call it body, body strength. You can, um, the team, something that over the last couple of years, teams that have had a lot of success are the teams that have uh, robust perimeter players for the most part. Um, I think the, the, the Celtics are, are, are a great example of that this year. Um, players who, even if you want to play smaller to take better advantage of, of kind of space and space, you, your smaller players can still rebound. They can still battle physically with, with, with larger players. You don't okay. like, not necessarily like the, you know, the skinny six, four guy, the, the stout six, five guy with some athleticism and, and some wingspan. That's the type of player that, that sort of versatility to play multiple styles is something that becomes very, uh, very useful in the playoffs as you have to be valuable Good. to, you know, address the strengths and weaknesses of a specific opponent. And then if you advance, a completely different opponent, right. with the same set of players.
1: Who who is like the canonical robust perimeter player in the NBA? Or who's an example of that.
0: I mean, Mark, Marcus Smart. Is, I thought you were going to say you know, Smart. Good, good. Yeah, guy. well, okay. I mean, you know, I he's it's, so. It's, I, I mentioned the Celtics, but yeah, no, Mar, uh, like Mar, Marcus Smart. Um, even, but even a play, you know, prior to his injuries, I think like Clay Thompson was someone who had who had a lot of you know ability to to be. You know, physical on and off the ball without fouling, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and so um, you know the Suns had a, had a number of those players. The Mavericks, part big part of the reason why they had success against the Suns is they have uh, players like Dorian Finney-Smith and Maxi Kleba and, and uh, uh, Reggie Bullock, who who all sort of fit that that archetype as well.
4: Okay, okay. so Seth, I want to ask you, how do you measure? It's easy to say, you know, binary win loss or correct incorrect. How do you even measure success of prediction like for example, you could argue well, you got the sun's wrong you predict the Mavericks are going to win well the Mavericks beat them in seven so is there ever any way when you're evaluating the quality of predictions you don't just use binary correct incorrect and you look at if you'd like degree of miss degree of misprediction
0: uh I mean you can do that and it's also it's why it's important to make a lot of predictions. Because over you know over time, any one prediction could have got, an injury could have happened, you could have gotten a crazy bounce, what have you, but if consistently over time you're you know you 're right sixty percent of the time and the field is right fifty five percent of the time and I think i 've just described winning sports gambling, but that's, <laughs> I mean, in many ways that 's what it is um, so I think just being making a lot of them and then being you know conducting self audit not just on results but on processes okay. Uh, was the reason that the Suns lost? Were there predictable aspects of to it? Some yes, some no. I think unpacking what exactly happened to the Suns in that series is going to be a you know a fun endeavor all summer because it it really seemed like for the first part of that series that they uh, were on easy street and then. Uh, things thing, thing, things they done changed.
4: Well, let's stay actually with that. What? So I'm going to ask a different version of a question that Kate had just asked you. So how much can we learn from round to round? So you might say, well, maybe the Mavs are much better than we thought they were. I guess they're going to really give the Warriors a hard time. I don't personally see it that way at all, but how do you see it?
0: It's funny. I was actually I, – I, uh, I did a hit on uh, Bay Area Radio yesterday, and the host kind of phrased that same question. And I was like, you know, that's my instant reaction as well, but I've been very wrong about the Mavs
1: mm-hmm. so
0: far, like at multiple points this season. And so that's sort of – in my mind, there's the um, – is it time to update your prior yet? How mm-hmm. about now? Mm-hmm. How about now? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and so I, 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 it's very difficult to um, – because Golden State has shown flaws you know this this playoffs um you know after the first two games of the playoffs when uh especially Steph Curry looked kind of like vintage Steph you're like all right these guys are these guys are are right there but then since then he's been Disappointing <laughs> relative to that high standard.
4: Yeah. No. And also, I- if what you were said earlier is true, that the Dorian Finney-Smiths and the Reggie Bullock, if they have any ability to do what they did to Chris Paul and Devin Booker, and we all saw Game Seven, if they can do that to Clay Thompson and Seth Curry, then all of a sudden Golden State's in big trouble. So that's the question. And that matter of fact, you pointed out, Seth, and I, I'd like your opinion. I think you've pointed out exactly the key to the series. It's not Luka Doncic. It's not any of those people. It's can Bullock and Finney Smith and the other guards, can they slow down at all Curry and Thompson like the way they did it to Booker and Paul?
1: By the way, is it time I to think. put Jordan Poole in that question as well?
4: Well, I would have put – I'll be interested in Seth's opinion. I would have put Poole except – Pool had a very disappointing – he's had a very disappointing last seven or eight games. I would have put him in there, but you're right. Maybe if you slow down Thompson and, and Curry, all of a sudden Poole goes back to the guy that was putting in 25 a game.
0: Uh, I'll start with Poole. That's an interesting case because, like, the way – it's almost like the way you, you attack – you try to slow down Jordan Poole is you just score on him repeatedly. He's, he's a he's a pretty poor defender, and mm, I think that that's mm. – that in many ways that's, like, almost – you don't, you might not even need to get into like a defensive scheme. If you just, you know, um, uh, th- this is the interesting part about the playoffs is the matchups are so specific um, because Dallas has a, in Jalen Brunson has exactly that kind of physically robust guard who can just overpower and, and did so for, you know, the entire first round series against Utah and, and certainly in parts of the second round series against Phoenix. And he has a, a tremendous strength advantage against Jordan pool. And so if, Jordan Poole can't stay on the floor because they can't keep themselves out of that matchup, then they don't need to worry about stopping him on offense. Mm -hmm. Um, But beyond that, yeah, no, I think that that, you know, for as good as Phoenix's support players had been all season, they were still players who were relatively limited ball in hands. So once sort of the supply of of advantageous touches was either cut off or limited by Dallas's defense, then they suffered. And I think it's fair to make a similar, you know, similar point about, you know, you know, everyone on the Warriors past Steph and, you know, to some degree, Poole and Clay Thompson, that that if those touches dry up, they might struggle
4: to score. Mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about the other series, which is, if you had to rank order the players in the series, it would be in the, this is the uh, Celtics, um, Heat. Heat. Celtic Heat series, thank you. Um, you'd have to argue that Jason Tatum, at least, on, is the best player in that series. Probably not far behind might be Jimmy Butler, although you could make an argument if you were a Celtics fan, Jalen Brown. But then after that, I think a lot of the, on paper, next best players sit on the Celtics side. So how do you think about that series when in some sense on paper at least nobody but Jimmy Butler on the Heat's really worth that much? You could say bam out of bio if he's going against certain players, but how do you think about that series when in some sense if I had to rank the top ten players, I'd have to say the Celtics have seven or eight of them, but I don't necessarily think that means they're gonna win the series.
0: So I'm I'll preface this by saying that I'm I'm picking the Celtics to win that that series. Um I think these are very similar teams um, in that they are um, very active, grindy defensive teams. I think the advantage the Celtics have is not just that I think Tatum is a little bit of a better, a little bit better player than Jimmy Butler, but the specific way he's he's better in which. Okay, these games are going to be rock fights, um, but the Celtics have, especially if Kyle Lowry is out or limited, the Celtics have more and better options to. All right, we're not going to get a good shot, so we have players who can make bad shots in, in Tatum and Brown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that's something that Jimmy Butler can do sometimes,
4: but it's not. Something what, you're not counting good. on Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson to save the day for the uh, Heat? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, for as good as Tyler Hero has been this year, I have to say he's not on that level of player. And if it comes down to who's going to make more shots between Jason Tatum and Tyler Hero, I mean, yes, like, you know, you flip a coin enough times, like the, like the Heat could win that four times in seven, but I think you, you'd have to agree that's massive advantage, Boston, if that's the decision point the series comes down to.
1: Let's take it one step further and ask how you think the, let's just say, Boston comes through that series. How do you think they stack up against either of the teams out of the West?
0: Uh, I, I mean, I think they, I think they are the favorite to win the title right now. There, it's
1: they, almost like even money for them to win the title. Is it that big a deal?
3: right I don't, now? I
0: don't, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I would go that far. Um, the Heat, are, the Heat are a team that's tough for me to rate, um, just because I think that they, while the rest of these teams have had like legitimate playoff battles, the Heat, by virtue of earning the number one seed, got to play
4: a fairly simple okay that's
1: interesting right but
4: by the way let me ask you just just building on that number one you as a former bucks guy you've got to explain to all of our listeners because this is the as you know the biggest thing that's going that game seven would have been at milwaukee if milwaukee had played all of its players the last game of the season and won that last game and not tied with boston do you have any explanation for the for basically milwaukee giving up the number two seed
0: uh, I think having your guys healthy is is a bigger lever, and unfortunately for Milwaukee, they neither had home court nor, like you know, their second best player missed the whole series. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a much bigger and and frankly, I think a lot of that the commentary coming out of that series has been silly. Like the Bucks, like deserve great credit for going to seven games without Chris Middleton,
4: mm-hmm.
0: um, and I think you you saw their inability to score in the half court was a direct result of you know their best half court shot creator not being available. Mm-hmm. But so like I don't I, I think we may have even talked about this before. I don't really think there's much percentage in, you know, trying to engineer, you know, matchups or seedings or stuff like that. But if you're going to rest guys to make sure they're healthy and primed to play in the playoffs, I think that's I, I think that I think that's a bigger edge than than a possible home court in uh, one of, I was know, just referring to
4: the last game of the season. Yeah, where you the yeah, two and three were locked in? It was going. The yeah. Sixers were already out. They were going to be the four. The Heat were going to be the one. It was just a matter of who was if they played each other, who would have home court. And if it went according to chalk, they were going to play each other. So that's the only reason I've. This, I think this narrative is yeah. so strong. It wasn't like, well, with ten games left, let's try to engineer it. It's with one game left.
2: Yeah. No. Everybody. I mean. I think everybody can be compelled by the kind of load management aspects of these things, but it wasn't a possible home field advantage or home court advantage. It was a definite home court advantage that they gave up, basically, Correct. in that last game.
0: I, I, I mean, the flip side almost came to pass, though. I mean, you know, the, the I think Dallas was fortunate that they played Utah in the first round if they had played most other teams in the ra- West with Luka Doncic out and then limited for the series because he— Strained his calf in the last game of the in in the, in the last game of the season. I I I think mm-hmm. they they lose in the first round. So mm-hmm. I think that that's the. I, I think that's the counterpoint. Is like mm-hmm. okay, we're here. The most important thing is that we, we're going to be about where we're going to be seeding wise. Like, I think having our guys is more important than home court in Game Seven.
4: Mm-hmm. So um, look-
0: now you can you can like making the calculation of balancing that risk is. Is is complicated, but I think that if you're a team that rests your guys in the last game of the season, if it if it doesn't if it's not a big lever, I think you just stick with that. Mm-hmm. Um, just if, if for no other reason, then it's it's an it's an easy decision, and then you can focus the rest of your time on on playoff prep rather than agonizing over over how to play the last game of the season when it only it ha- it it is a of relatively
4: minor import to your
0: mm-hmm. ultimate. Mm-hmm.
4: I just yeah. want to ask you. Just quickly, what do we do as Sixers fans here now? <laughs> Where No, I'm serious. So I, I'm sure, Seth, maybe it was you that tweeted this, but lots of people have tweeted this. We've gotten no further now since the process than pre-process. So in other words, when they, we had the team of Evan Turner and Andre Iguodala and all of that, we got to the second round and lost in seven. We got to the second round again and lost in seven. We've not been to the conference finals, I think, since the Allen Iverson era. Uh, so... We're now stuck with potentially James Harden, at up whatever it is, forty seven point eight million dollar player option. We have no draft picks, so what is it that the, you see the Sixers going to do going forward? Or we basically, if we want to get to the championship level, we have to go through the process again.
0: I mean, the first thing is is get a little bit luckier. Um, I, 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 we were talking about the, the Heat, like you know that they're they're like I, I think I, I if Joel Embiid is you know, available and healthy ish, like minor injuries, you know, he had, he had the thumb injury, which was going to hamper him. Okay. Even that aside, if he was able to, you know, play the first couple of games and be at, at, you know, not have had a week off from being able to, you know, condition himself from the concussions that, uh, you know, in a play that happened after the last series was decided essentially um, like that uh, almost on its own decided that series, like, Mm -hmm. And beat missing games and being, you know, and having some some conditioning issues resulting from it. Uh, like, you know, Miami started the series basically with a you know a two lap head start. Right. Um. So you know, but and that's not the first. Like you know, that you go back to to 2019 and you know they uh, the Sixers lost Game Seven of the second round in about as agonizing a way. Uh, not to you know bring up painful memories, but you know. The ball might still be bouncing yeah. for him from that from that Kawhi jump shot. Well, that was so, a true
2: coin flip ending for that particular yeah, series.
0: Yeah. So you know, there's, it, you know, you can only run a career once. But I think that they mm. have been, you know, in, in with their better teams, and that's not even like uh, uh, you know in the bubble. Ben Simmons, I believe it was his knee. He tweaked his knee right before the playoffs started in the bubble. After he had played very well in the in the first couple of games in the bubble. So, like, just, they have been, you know, some of it, okay, you have injury-prone players, you put yourself in a position to get unlucky, but they've still, I would say, you know, run worse than expectation in mm-hmm. terms of the mm-hmm. playoffs. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that means that if they run at expectation, they would have won a championship, I don't know, but, you know, you have to be both good and lucky, and they've, and they've been at most one at any given time. in in kind of in beats prime one
1: one more on the Sixers I think in the end of year press conference Maury talked about Harden not having had a proper offseason yet Um, that is kind of pitted against some of these tracking data that show him at multiple miles per hour slower than he was in the last few seasons have we seen kind of the end of Harden or do you think he does have game left can he get can he pick up from this plateau he's been on recently
0: So I, he's not done. There's there, like there's like, even the diminished Harden is still an all star level player. Now the question is, is how diminished. Is he?
1: Eric, Eric is making all kinds of funny faces
4: when you say that. Yeah. You mean the D League all star team or? <laughs>
0: no, like like James Harden is the. Now, James Harden will have to play a slightly different style to be that to have that level of of impact.
4: Just want to confirm for our we, listeners, Seth, we're talking about the. At the game I was at, game six, the o for two in the second half, yeah. Harden, the one that had turnovers, yeah. that only took two shots, the one that was o for two from three point line, the one who couldn't beat any, couldn't beat PJ Tucker, although that's one of the type players hey, you talked about, couldn't beat PJ Tucker off the dribble. talk about my
1: man Tucker.
4: I was not. And I'm saying Tucker's almost thirty seven, so James Harden couldn't beat a thirty seven year old off the timeless, dribble.
1: Timeless thirty seven year
4: old. Or. or what? A timeless 37. Yeah, real timeless. Okay, so I'm saying, I just want to make sure we're talking about the same James Harden. So, no, I was getting to the point
0: where, where he's no longer, like, his, his physical abilities are no longer at the point where your offense can just be, okay, he's going to stand at the top of the key and, and beat a guy off the dribble and either create a shot for himself or someone else. Like, that guy is gone. Like, that you can probably, you know, at, at times in the right matchup, you can go to that, but that's no longer the basis of an offense. That doesn't mean he can't still be a very effective pick and roll player. It doesn't mean he still can't be, uh, you know, effective playing off an advantage. Philadelphia has other players who can create advantage, and most importantly, Joel Embiid, but Tyrese Maxey as well. So if he if he's able to alter his game, and he has the skills, like he ha- he's a good enough shooter, he's a, he's good enough at driving a closeout. He's he's certainly good enough at at you know getting fouled when he has an advantage. I mean, we, we know that. So Seth, um, is, this a, there, is this
1: a case of a guy late in his career and just having to make a conscious effort of ex- accepting his limits and shifting his game? And we all saw Michael yeah. Jordan change his game late in his career.
0: I mean, every, every, every great player who has aged well has done so, And he's going to be 33 years old by the start of next year. So it's like, you know, whatever else you want to say about Harden, anything else about him, it is to be expected that his game is going to have to alter as he, as he ages now, you know, brought up the the contract and stuff like that. I kind of think him picking up the option is actually not the worst thing for the Sixers because it's better than him not picking up the option and them signing him to the most money possible in a contract that immediately becomes an albatross, stretching stretching five years down the road. Mm-hmm. So like you know, at a big number next year and then a more reasonable number commensurate with his. His current level of play isn't the worst thing that could happen. Um, so, well, I'm,
1: I'm glad to hear a little have, optimism on this front and a little yeah, counter narrative.
0: Well, I, mean, I mean, you still have you know you still have one of the top. I don't know. Even if we're being like like pessimistic on Embiid, you still have one of the top ten, eight, six players in the league. Okay. That's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the NBA, aside from the quarterback in football, there's no sport where the returns to having a top, top player are as high as they are in the NBA. So they they got that guy.
1: Well, Eric hasn't seen the guy. Embiid sorry. is that yeah, no, guy. Embiid is that guy. Yes, that's I'm what sorry. I mean. So that. you
0: have him. You have him. So, you know, if you can figure stuff out around that, yeah. that's, a, that's that's you know, there are 20 franchises who would switch places. Right,
1: right. All right, listen, Seth. We're near the end. I want to ask you one question. It kind of as a look into the state of analytics in the NBA, especially as you guys are building out at StatsBomb and NBA Practice. Of course, you're selling not just into teams, but to other entities as well. But just give us a sense. I traded the emails the other day with an analyst with an NBA team that that is in the playoffs, and I was asking for something. I just kind of blanked for a second where the schedule was he's like yeah but i can't do it right now i'm a little i am like i'm working 24 7 what is it take us inside the building what's an analyst in the nba doing for a team in the playoffs right now like day to day working night and day to support the team what does that look like like what exactly is the contribution of analytics at this moment
0: so this is where you uh this is where having all of your kind of baseline reporting automated really pays off is because now you have time to dive into those those specific situations and at this point you're all, you're dealing in such small sample sizes that you're trying to you know figure out things you can do to help with tendencies mm-hmm. um, okay mm-hmm. does this play when, when when they run a pick and roll on the left side of the floor is this a player who has a propensity for for you know rejecting the screen that's if mm-hmm. the you know defender like jumps too far towards the screen going the get away. Mm-hmm. like Trey Young is a player in the league who does that about a, probably more than anybody like figuring out who and where on the floor they like to do that what direction do players like to drive when they're attacking a closeout what you know uh, does does someone, this is, this is tough to pull out from the data, but does a player Euro step or do they, do they drive? Does mm-hmm. a player run to the three point line or to the basket on the fast break? Like those are some of, these are some of the things that you, you, some of them are, are, are more kind of scouty. Some of them are, are derivable from either, either, uh, event level data or from the tracking data itself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which play like, you know, with, uh, a lot of the strategy defensive strategy in the playoffs is knowing which guys you can leave on the perimeter. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. as much about which players are uh wheeling shooters as it is, which players are accurate shooters. Interesting. Okay. Um, because the guy who is, you know, uh, this is something that Al Horford, this has been an improvement in Al Horford's game and has been big for the Celtics is he used to be, a guy, he's always been a good shooter, but he's not a guy who you say, okay, you know, when, when we were with the bucks, we kind of employed the strategy. Okay. If every pick and pop Al Horford catches the ball at the top of the key, he's gonna have, he's gonna shoot have to shoot it every time. Yeah, and he didn't want to. Yeah, right. And right. Mark Gasol was like this for for much of his career. Okay, he has become a guy who's like, oh, you're leaving me. I'm shooting. Right. And knowing which guys are going to hesitate, which guys okay. are going to shoot, has can has a a uh, can ha- can impact you know your your the specificity of your defensive scheme. Very So cool. just trying to find all those little okay. things. And the other. The other, uh, the other thing um, that the that, uh, analysts with teams that are still in the playoffs are going to deal with is uh, you're also operating on the second track, the draft lotteries tonight. Oh, so God. you're doing draft. You're, you're, dra- you're also like, this is like, you know, you are ramping up hardcore. Yeah,
1: you? right. There's no rest. There's no rest. No. Do you see much no. difference? Last question, and you may not want to answer it, but do you think there's much difference in analytic sophistication across the four teams that are left in the NBA playoffs?
0: Oh, boy is a good question um i mean they have there's a four pretty pretty strong groups
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: that mm-hmm. that I, I like um golden state in particular golden state actually so during some of their their run was not as as you know they didn't need to be because they had yep. the best players. But they sort of, when they had their down year, they kind of reinvested in yeah. it. Um, mm-hmm. Miami has always low key been been you know yeah. in, in, involved in this. Is ball Battier
1: thing. still down there helping them with some of that?
0: Uh, he he is not. But they have they have a they have a good and growing group down there. Okay. Um, and you know uh, Dallas, I think, was one of the first teams in the league. Yeah, right. To have have an, a, a, an analyst traveling with the team full time. Now, now most of the league is caught up to that practice but but the Mavs were, were kind of early on that on that train. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are these are these are four teams that have been you know um, somewhat data for I don't I don't think I would put any of them in the top top echelon yeah. of, of teams that, that are most invested, but that's a small group that's you know Toronto and, and Billy and maybe one or two other teams. Right. Okay. but but they are certainly right there in terms of, of their of how much they they rely on and get out of their their analysis groups.
1: Okay, good fun. Well, good to see those guys having some success. Seth, as always, thanks for making the time to be with us. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much for having me again. Absolutely, I can come Seth, back anytime.
1: Seth Partnow, Director of Basketball at StatsBomb. He's also an NBA analyst at The Athletic and the author of a book late 2021 book, The Mid-Range Theory. The Mid-Range Theory, great recent book on how the game of basketball has changed. Seth Partnow. That has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week for the whole crew. They're all in here all day long. Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, this is Cade Massey for Matty Dats, the boss man, for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, doing all the real work around here. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time between now and then. Enjoy your sports.